The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. We've got a somewhat unusual uh, book in front of us today because it's really, it's written by a practitioner. And what's so interesting about it is it really, it says it's the untold story, and in fact it is the untold story because it really differs from the consensus view that you read every day in the newspapers here. So it's, um, it's, it's an education, even for a banker, a former banker like me, it's an education on, um, on how banking has developed in China over the last, more or less, couple of decades, a little less than that. But um, it's terrific to have James Stent here with us today. Thank you. Good. Great. Good evening, everybody, and thank you, Stephen, for uh, having me come here this evening. I'm delighted to have the opportunity to introduce my book to you. I was a independent director of uh, uh, two Chinese banks successively, the China Minsheng Bank and the China Everbright Bank, uh, for a total of 13 years, starting in 2003 and uh, finishing in 2016. So I was the independent director of these two Chinese banks, and during that period of 13 years, finishing last year, I was privileged to witness and be a minor participant in an extraordinary transformation of Chinese banks, from effectively uh, cashiers of the government under the old planned economy model, and then watch them transform into modern, well-run, Uh, commercial banks. At the same time I was watching all of that, there was, uh, I was reading in the mainstream commentariat, uh, an ongoing negative, skeptical uh, narrative about the banks, about uh, the Chinese economy, and about how China's banks were about to precipitate a banking crisis, and that would bring the Chinese economy down with it. This began, of course, with the publication in 2001 of Gordon Chang's The Coming Crisis in China. Uh, Then in 2009, there was uh, a book came out, Red Capitalism, uh, which was highly skeptical of the Chinese banking system. And as Steve has just said, you can open the paper almost any day of the week and you will see something about China that is, uh, about Chinese banks that is negative. I give just a sampling of of it up here. My favorite is Paul Krugman's remarks down at the bottom where he says, China's remarkable success over the past 25 years notwithstanding, the nation's rulers have no idea what they're doing. One wonders what would have been accomplished if the rulers had known what they were doing. I think what he means, though, is that they weren't doing it the way Krugman felt it should be done with adherence to Western-style economics. I think he uh, doesn't accept the fact that China's political economy is very different. Now, for investors who are confronted every day by these uh, negative articles, uh, it makes things difficult for them. Uh, Year after year, the negative consensus has been confounded by events. The Chinese banking crisis has not occurred. Chinese banks have prospered. The Chinese economy has done extremely well, as we all know, and that could only be done through, uh, among other things, through effective financial intermediation by the banking system. 
So as I decided that I should write a book that would provide a more balanced perspective and more insight into how Chinese banking works and beyond that into what, how the Chinese political economy uh, functions. Because Chinese banks are embedded in a political economy that is very different from the political economy that we all know. And as a result, my book is not just a book about the banking transformation, but it serves as a case study using the banking sector. It's a case study for how China's political economy works. And at the same time, you can't understand the banking sector if you don't understand the political economy context. The two uh, feed into each other. So my bank straddles both of those. I make three propositions fundamentally in the bank. The first is that China's banks have indeed undergone a night and day transformation. Secondly, that the banking system is embedded in and serves the Chinese political economy, the Chinese economic development plans. And thirdly, that that political economy is embedded in the culture and values that have been developed over millennia in China and which are fundamentally different from the Western. And I think that the Western skeptical narrative, they don't understand those three propositions. Now, on the night and day transformation of the banks, I'll be very brief about that. You can question me further in discussion period. But what I saw when I joined uh, Minchung Bank in 2003, this transformation was just getting underway. In the 1990s, the Chinese banks had been indeed awash in bad debt. NPLs are estimated to have been something like 40% of the total portfolio. And Zhu Rongji, uh, he, was, he's not, he was brought up in the planned economy. He wasn't an expert in Western economics. But I talked to members of the teams that he sent out around the world to study how Western banking systems worked. And they described to me the excitement of going out to America, UK, even Thailand where I live, uh, Japan, all over the world to find out how a good banking system worked. And coming back and reporting to Zhu Rongji and the other senior leaders in the Chinese government, this is the kind of banking system that we will need in order to fund the forthcoming rapid development of the Chinese economy. So uh, they borrowed heavily from Western models, uh, heavily from the US uh, through these study trips, but also through bringing in Western consultants, through advice from the World Bank, from ADB, uh, from bringing in people like myself to work within the Chinese banking system, bringing back Chinese expatriates who had experience on Wall Street and in, in the UK, and very rapidly, at speed that actually surprised the Chinese themselves, they, adap they adopted the best blank banking practice that they found overseas. But they not only adopted it, they also adapted it. Whenever the Chinese adopt, they also adapt to make it work within a Chinese context. And that is one of the strengths, I think, of uh, China's economic development, is this adaptation with adop uh, adop adoption with adaptation. Well, corporate governance was the first thing that had to be brought in. And, uh, Boards of directors were a totally new concept for Chinese banks. What does an independent director do? All of these things had to be sorted out. The relationship between the board and management. I feel that today, um, Chinese corporate governance, at least in the banks, I can't speak about other sectors, but in, in the banks, Chinese corporate governance, I think, is quite good. 
I read about the problems that occurred in corporate governance in Wall Street banks in 2008, and I think to myself, something went wrong there. The boards weren't doing their job the way that they've been doing it in Chinese banks. Risk management obviously was high priority given the fact that the, the, the banking system had 40% bad debts. They, the Chinese and everything they do, they prioritize. So risk management, anybody who knows banking knows there are many kinds of risk management. They started with the most uh, acute problem, which was credit risk. And then they proceeded into operational risk, liquidity risk, market risk, gradually getting into things like strategic and reputational risk today. Accounting. They had to move from a socialist accounting system to uh, bring accounting up to international standards. Audit. Internal audit was a totally new idea. Internal control. And uh, the first audit committee that I chaired in 2006, uh, the internal audit team didn't have any value added. They didn't know what to do. So I spent some time explaining to them what they should be reporting, what they should be doing, and then they went to it, and within three or four years, internal audit in our bank had become a core part of the whole management and control process. And I could go on, uh, but those are just examples of how year by year uh, the, I could see the quality of Chinese bank management, operations, customer service, et cetera, improve. And last of all, I should just mention financial technology, fintech, uh, Chinese cell phone banking, internet banking is not only caught up with the West, it now leads the West by two to three years. However, Chinese banks are not clones of Western banks. They've adopted all of this, but they've adapted it. And they have, the, the whole rationale for a Chinese bank is somewhat different from the rationale of a Western bank. I can best illustrate this by saying, if you ask Jamie Dimon why he goes to work in the morning, he would say, very simple, make profits for the bank, create shareholder value, and pay me a big bonus. If you ask the CEO of a Chinese bank what he has to do when he goes to work each day, he'll say, I have to create shareholder value. My shareholders demand that. They're listed in the stock market. The government shareholders also push for dividends, uh, risk control, all of that. That's how the CEOs are evaluated, how much ROE they can produce on the bottom line, the quality of their audits, etc. But at the same time, he must ensure that his bank is contributing to the development of the Chinese nation. And if you take a look at the uh, annual reports of, say, the Bank of China, most of the annual reports, the chairman's message starts out with, I am pleased to report to the shareholders that your bank, in the year just passed, has successfully played a role in development of the national economic strategies, and we made, say, 15% return on equity. Two things. So I call Chinese banks hybrid banks. They have a dual role function effectively in a market economy with all of the scorecards that we use in a market economy, but also has a socialist responsibility to contribute to national development. Makes the life of a Chinese CEO quite difficult. Well, um, Chinese culture results in a political economy very different 
from the political economy of America, which arises out of American culture. Um, to oversimplify, the fundamental difference that I think contributes to the differences, uh, fundamental cultural difference that contributes to the differences in the political economies is that the United States, the basic cultural ethos of the United States is the individual. We feel uh, that we need liberty, we emphasize the rights of individuals, and we are suspicious of government. Most famously formulated by Ronald Reagan, government is not the solution, it's the problem. But even if you are a liberal Democrat, we all share a belief that in America, government needs to be constrained, we have checks and balances, we have all of these different things. In China, we, uh, uh, the Chinese people have a very different viewpoint. They emphasize the collectivity, not to say that Chinese aren't great individuals, individualists, but the individual is subordinated to the interests of the group, starting with the family. And this goes way back, as we all know, to the times of Confucius, that the family, jia, is fundamental in Chinese culture. And then with that come all sorts of obligations. So instead of uh, stressing your rights and your freedom, the obligation is on filial piety, uh, loyalty to the state, loyalty to the emperor, etc. And that remains, I think, very much true today. And then leads to uh, the state not being constrained, but quite on the contrary. The state in China is empowered to, uh, and is expected by the people to provide solutions, to provide uh, wealth and power for the Chinese nation and the Chinese people. So that results in the first, I think, main difference between Chinese uh, political economy and Western political economy. Namely, in America we have market capitalism, in China we have market socialism. This is the term that the Chinese use. I think it's very apt. I think it describes their system quite well. A lot of Westerners have difficulty with that term. They sometimes are a bit derisive about it. Say, Market and socialism, they're opposites. They don't go together. Well, in my book, I quote uh, both Deng Xiaoping and Xi Jinping, their formulations of this. Uh, Xi Jinping says, we have the invisible hand of the market. We have the visible hand of the state. They work together for the greater good. So that the Chinese viewpoint is, yes, we get it about the market. Yes, we've done our economics uh, homework. We believe in competition. We foster competition. But we do not think the market serves all, solves all problems. The market is a means to an end. It is not sacrosanct. In America, we think the magic of the market ultimately works out for the greater good. You can agree with it. You can disagree with it. Uh, but that's the way we do it here. And the Chinese think that intervention in the market is needed for the greater good. So that results in market socialism and results in what I have described as a hybrid banking system. China is not unique in doing this. Uh, China follows, in my opinion, there are those who will contest this, but in my opinion it follows the developmental state model, something that uh, econ economists wrote a bit about in the 80s and 90s. The developmental state model was started by a German economist, uh, List, in the early part of the 19th century, when he saw Germany as the catch-up uh, country compared with, the U with Great Britain. And he said, Adam Smith and the market capitalism is all very well for the, for the front runner, but we have to catch up 
the state has to intervene to develop the German economy. And this was followed very much by Bismarck in the latter part of the 19th century in developing the German uh, state. Uh, it was copied, it was translated into Japanese and copied by uh, the Meiji uh, Restoration. Uh, so you find the roles of Japanese banks in the latter part of the 19th century very similar indeed to what China has today. It was used in post-war Japanese reconstruction and it was of course used in uh, Park Chung-hee's Korea which modeled itself very much after Japan. So developmental state model has been used by various countries. It's interesting to see that at a certain point in the development of all of these countries, they've moved beyond it. So the question is, will China at a certain point move beyond or not? don't know the answer to that. Um, so second uh, main characteristic that I see of the political economy in China that differentiates it from the West is the decisive role of the party. I could compare market socialism with market capitalism, but I can't compare the, the role of the party in China to anything we have. We don't have anything resembling the uh, uh, Communist Party of China. Uh, it is invisible to the outsider, but it permeates everything in China. Uh, my own analysis is that it has four principal functions. It sets the big strategy, the big policy through the Politburo that is followed by the government. It communicates that policy to the government, to the SOEs, to the people uh, throughout the country. It exercises discipline and control. And for our purposes in understanding the banks, the key role it plays is the appointment of the key personnel in the major financial institutions. And it, this includes the private banks as well. They may not be directly appointed by uh, the party, but the people, the top, the CEO of the Minsheng Bank, of the Ping'an Bank, etc., they will be approved, if not appointed, by the party. Within the party, the uh, group that is responsible for doing this is the organization department. Organization department is very low profile for, for outsiders, but immensely powerful, immensely influential. And I describe it as the largest uh, human resources organization in the world. And I think at least within the financial sector, it does a very good job. I can't speak about other sectors. But the quality of people that they have been putting in senior positions in the banks over the last 10 years is, I think, outstanding. They're very good professionals. Apparently, very early on in the transformation of the Chinese banking system, Zhu Rongji went to the organization department and said, in this section, make sure that everybody who is appointed, this section of the economy, that they are all good professionals. They have to be good party members as well, but they must be competent professionals. So ultimately, the CEO of a Chinese bank he will be appointed to run a bank for, say, five years, eight years. He'll have a, a period there. And then he'll be transferred to another position, which may be a competing bank. The CEO of the Everbright Bank, uh, for most of the time I worked there, uh, was suddenly transferred by the organization department to become the uh, chairman of the supervis supervisory board of the construction bank. And the deputy CEO of the construction bank moved over to take his place in Everbright Bank. 
It's a little bit analogous to if you're in the State Department or the U.S. Army or Citibank and you get moved from, say, being the head of Citibank in Pakistan to be head of Citibank in the uh, Philippines and then brought back for a stint in head office. These are developmental assignments. They also are designed to suit the needs of Citibank units at any given time. They match people with needs. So, in a sense, uh, the organization department on a much bigger scale is doing the same sort of thing. So you see Guo Shuqing uh, moving from chairman of, uh, what was it, construction bank, I guess, and then going down to be uh, running the uh, China Security Ex uh, Exchange Commission, then being moved up to governorship of Shandong province, totally different kind of experience. All of this was developing him for the next level when he came back to his area of core competence, being uh, recently appointed to be the uh, chairman of the uh, Bank Regulatory Authority, the CBRC. The third uh, key aspect of China's political economy that is relevant to the banks is the power of the state. And this is often underestimated by us Americans because we know that the state, we, we bottle it in in all kinds of ways between the executive and the Congress and the Supreme Court and between the federal level and the local state level and the county level, etc. Uh, in China, uh, it's not a federal system. It's, although there's huge decentralization, it's ultimately a unitary government. And uh, it doesn't have to worry about terms in office. It can move with very long-term objectives in mind, but it can also move very quickly when it wants to to address areas of difficulty. And this uh, uh, gives the government the ability to solve problems in ways that are not anticipated by Western uh, observers. They will see each year over the last few years, you'll see Westerners worrying about some problem that is going to bring down the banking system. It's the ghost cities and the housing bubble. And then the ghost cities start to fill up with real live human beings. Uh, then the next year it'll be the local government lending platforms. And they're all going to default on their debt. Well, we haven't heard about that in the last four years. Ways were found of solving that problem. And it's an ongoing uh, sort of solution. Uh, so they can move effectively uh, to resolve problems. And they have no ideological hang-ups uh, concerning how to use the power of the state to affect outcomes. Totally pragmatic. Whatever works, that's what we will do. The next two things I would like to uh, talk about on the Chinese political economy are what I call attributes or characteristics, whereas the first three were more structure of it. And the first of these attributes is stability, stability, stability. Um, one of you in the audience I was speaking with this afternoon who works for a Chinese bank and was commenting to me how risk-averse he found Chinese banks. This is because risk is disruptive and disruption is destabilizing. And China does not like destabilization. They've had enough of it over the 150 years prior to the reform and opening. Stability, order, these are much prized. The uh, uh, very famous institutional economist, uh, Douglas North, uh, 
uh, in the 90s wrote a book about the West, uh, Western e economic development, and he made a very perceptive remark. He said, in the West, we tend to take order in our societies in the modern era for granted. Chinese do not take that for granted. They look to the government to provide it. This morning in a presentation, one of the uh, Chinese in the audience said she'd recently been to a discussion of P2P lending in China, a seminar that was done. And a government spokesman talking there said, P2P lending has all kinds of potential, but we will never let it be disruptive. So disruption is not harmonious. It's destabilizing. You avoid risk, and people underestimate the extent to which in Chinese banks, risk is the thing that the boards are most obsessed with. That's what most of our time in board meetings was spent on, risk and control. To go along with this, Chinese don't do big banks. In America, if we're going to do something, we like to do it. we get out, get it done. China likes to go very slowly. First of all, in devising a policy, there will be often years of discussion and debate within the government uh, concerning uh, what uh, policy on a particular area should be developed. Input will be sought very broadly. The discussion will be vigorous, and a lot of it is often uh, done in the public sphere and not just behind closed doors. But when a decision is finally made, everybody gets behind it. But that decision is often at a high level and it is still sometimes somewhat tentative. All kinds of implementing regulations need to be developed in the bureaucracy, and very often they will want to do pilot tests. This is a very characteristic of China. And I uh, explain this by saying if Xi Jinping were Obama and were unveiling Obamacare, he probably would have started with a remote uh, county in Idaho. And then when the system crashed, he would have repaired that and there wouldn't be too much discussion. Then he'd try it in Florida. Finally, he'd move into Manhattan. And then when everything was working well and everybody was comfortable with it, the bureaucracy had bought into it, and the implementing regulations all worked, it would be rolled out nationwide. Well, Obama didn't have the luxury of doing that. He had to get it out and done quickly before his term was finished. And Trump came in to try and uh, end it. So... Um, a characteristic of China is they will announce reforms, but they will be frustratingly slow in implementing them. You look at the third plenum reforms that were announced, 60 reform measures, laundry list basically of all the things Xi Jinping hoped to do within the 10 years he expects to be in power. But after two or three years, you don't see very much of it being implemented. So everybody's saying, what's happening with reforms? Well, probably if you dig down some of the ones that are prioritized to be particularly important, probably some pilots are occurring on some of these. Uh, they're experimenting. They're feeling their way on it. Others may be lower priority and haven't even started yet and may not, in fact, be started during Xi Jinping's period. After all, the whole financial transformation was first set forth by the, the uh, party at a meeting in 1993. And it was about five years later before they got serious about doing it. And it was 15 years later before I think they really completed the transformation. The next one I would like to mention is strategy, strategic focus. <clears throat> and, um, 
Steve Roach has written a wonderful book that I commend to all of you, Unbalanced. And he says, in America, we're really good at corporate strategy. We don't do national strategy, period. The Chinese do not do much corporate strategy. And frankly, they haven't needed to because it's been easy to make money in the economy thus far. But they're having to begin to work on corporate strategy now, uh, including in the banks. Um, but they do national strategy. It's in the five-year plans. It's in uh, the party resolutions, the third plenum documents, reform documents, these sorts of things. And uh, I commend these documents to everybody to read. It is some of the most mind-numbingly boring prose in Chinese <coughs> and English you will ever read. It's condensed down to the most two most boring pages in my book are the ones where I quote from from uh, Chinese government uh, plans. But every word of it is something that has been agreed upon through probably years of discussion and has the commitment the government wants to do it. Not right away, but eventually. And you're probably going to see it eventually happen. So worth paying a lot of attention to that. Okay, there was a fair amount of discussion in the last couple of years, a little less now, about is China going to shelve their reform program in favor of keeping up growth in order to preserve stability, or will they sacrifice stability and economic growth to achieve reforms? I don't think the Chinese see it that way. First of all, it's sort of a Western idea that if we reform, it should hurt. Uh, there should be pain involved with this. Chinese don't particularly want pain. Pain is disruptive. Pain is disharmonious. It's destabilizing, etc. So they want both. And Chinese are very good at handling yin and yang. They're very good at handling uh, contradiction. They're very good at handling ambiguities. And so what you see is constant modulation of the rate of growth through money supply control, uh, through uh, uh, controls on mortgage lending, this kind of thing on the one hand, with implementation of reforms. And when the economy is doing quite well and they're feeling quite comfortable, as they appear to be right now, then reform gets a little more emphasis. A year ago, when the Chinese economy seemed to be decelerating a little faster than they wanted and the world economic uh, situation was not looking very promising, they went a little slower on reform because they didn't want the disruption to the economy that that would entail. So getting to the end of my presentation, uh, I would just briefly mention uh, what I write about in the last two chapters, or the next to the last two chapters of my book, which is what are the challenges uh, facing the Chinese financial system in the future, and what are the reforms they're likely to undertake. Um, and I put it in, in terms of Guo Shuqing as the new head of the CBRC, what confronts him, what does he have to do? And I think an important thing to note is that financial system includes much more than the banking system. Granted, the banking system is the principal agent of funding in the Chinese economy today. It is a bigger section or a bigger component of total social finance in China than it is in any other country in the world, possible exception of Hungary. But it's, a, it's an economy that is heavily dependent on banks for funding. They want to lower this. They want to decrease the level of dependence on banking. 
So when we talk about, when Guo Shuqing talks about the need for financial reform, people often immediately think this means, aha, he's saying the banks need more reform. Actually, if you look at the details, that's not what he's saying. I think within the banking sector, he does face three challenges, two of which I think he clearly knows, and the third, I'm not sure. Uh, the first one is that the transformation has occurred in the 17 large national banks, namely the five huge uh, state-owned banks and the 12 uh, joint stock banks. Among the hundred and some odd city banks, it's a work in progress. Some of them are extremely good. I would name the Bank of Beijing and the Bank of Shanghai, among others, as in excellent shape, perhaps better shape than the big banks. Others are very problematic. And when you get down to the third tier, which is the local banks, uh, they're all over the place. Uh, but they're not systemic risks. But one of the challenges, I think, over the next five years is to drive the transformation down from the level of the top banks down to the, to the lower tier banks. Secondly, the banks all face disintermediation in two ways. First, classic disintermediation through uh, major corporate customers going over and availing of capital market finance, disintermediating the banks, what is called direct financing as opposed to indirect. And thirdly, and this is the one I worry about, and I'm not sure how much recognition of this is, there is banks are increasingly getting involved in private sector lending. They don't know how to do it. Uh, quite naturally, they haven't done it before. You need to have gray hair to be a good lender into the SME sector. And I went around and talked to a lot of branch account officers. They're very bright young graduates of places like Tsinghua, but they don't have gray hair. And they haven't seen a downturn in the economy. They don't know how to assess uh, tough entrepreneurs. Uh, they don't know how to analyze balance sheets that are probably have three versions to them, etc. So that's a big challenge that I think they, that's where I do think some NPLs will emerge over the next five years. SOE debt, uh, there are some things that the banks can do about it, debt equity swaps, uh, uh, restructuring loans, uh, providing longer maturities, but basically SOE debt has to be solved at the SOE level. And in the third plenum of 2013, there's a lot about reform of the non-financial SOEs. They did reform effectively of the financial SOEs. They should be able to do it with the non-SOEs. Local government debt, Basically, it's a matter of developing bond markets they can issue uh, into. Shadow banking? Shadow banking's pretty much a good thing, uh, but it needs regulation. It doesn't yet present the systemic risks that you would think they do from reading a lot of the press, but it needs to be regulated. And above all, the capital markets need to be developed as an alternative to the banks, the equity markets. And so the next few years will be extremely interesting for Chinese banks. The challenges are tougher than they have been. Uh, not to uh, downplay what Zhu Rongji accomplished, but uh, the Chinese economy is much more complex than it was when he did the transformation. The Chinese people are probably their tolerance for some of the pain that occurred in the transformation in earlier years will be lower. Uh, China's economy is converging on the leaders in the world. So it becomes harder and harder to do things. Um, so the big question is, 
to me, not economic. I think they're economic solutions, ultimately, to all the financial and non-financial economic problems China faces. The key is, does China retain the pragmatic and flexible ability at the political level and the political willpower to do the necessary economic reforms to meet the challenges of the next few years. Uh, I'm guardedly optimistic on that. Uh, the uh, most well-known uh, voice from the other side today is uh, David Schembach, who uh, feels that they are losing precisely that ability to adapt to new realities, to develop the new policies that are needed to meet new situations. But I think uh, in the financial area, Xi Jinping came out uh, about 15 minutes, a wonderful clip you can see on Chinese television, and he got the key Politburo people and the PBOC people all in a room, and he lectured them for about 15 minutes on what they had to do in the financial sector. And I think that was the big boss telling people, get on with the reforms for the next uh, area. Thank you very much. What's the role of corruption? Um, well, it's certainly a negative role. <laughs> I don't see anything positive about it. Um, it's been very interesting, Steve, that there have been very few uh, arrests for corruption within the banking sector. And as a banker, I like to think that reflects the high moral character of us bankers. Um, but seeing what happened in Wall Street in 2008, I'm not sure that's true. Um, it probably, to a certain extent, reflects the cleanup that occurred in banking over the course of the transformation, the quality of the people that was brought in. If you look back 10 years ago, two successive chairmen of the construction bank were put away for quite a few years in jail for taking bribes. You haven't seen anything like that recently. There have been a few arrests. The most notable was um, uh, Mao Xiaofeng, the uh, very young uh, CEO of the Minsheng Bank, who was arrested about two years ago. Looking into that, um, it, although he was arrested for banking offenses, his real problem seemed to be that he was a protege of Ling Jihua, the disgraced private secretary of Hu Jintao. And when I was in uh, Minsheng Bank and he was the secretary of the board, he would always tell me with great pride about his affiliation with the China Youth League, which was Hu Jintao and uh, Ling Jihua's base. Well, it eventually turned out not to be a very good thing for him. Um, there have been a few others. There was a director of the Bank of Beijing who was arrested, but he was not arrested for banking offenses. He was part of the Beijing Energy uh, Consortium and therefore uh, caught up in the Zhou Yongkang uh, thing. So thus far, we have not seen very much uh, uh, corruption being revealed through this massive anti-corruption thing. When I was chairman of the audit committee, I repeatedly would look into this because it's a problem in Southeast Asian banks, money under the table to account officers. And people, they were worried about a lot of things, but my colleagues weren't worried about that. So, and I probed a lot, and I never came up with evidence that it was a significant problem. So, 
Uh, one could also argue that they uh, feel the banking sector is so sensitive and so high profile that maybe they haven't want to rock, rock the boat by arresting people. That's actually a quite prominent uh, view recently. Mm, I, so I think one reason corruption hasn't shown up in finance is for the reason you just mentioned, yeah. because nobody wanted to disrupt it. Yeah. As you said, this is probably the single most important industry uh, to run the economy. And they didn't want to disrupt. So you're saying it's there, but they don't want to prosecute yeah. it because it's too disruptive. Exactly. And uh, corruption is not the kind of corruption you might have seen in the Southeast Asian countries. People taking, uh, you know, uh, doing hanky panky under the table. They were doing big corruption. Yeah. The biggest corruption would happen in finance. Mm -hmm. And they would happen at the highest level. Yeah. And, and I'm not saying it's a secret. It's, oh, know, so too. Yeah. yeah. James has sat on the audit committees, which. I assume dig down, but you we dig down, down, but you, we you would go down and to the corruption. Don't necessarily happen in the banking books; they happen in other yeah. affairs. So, as as you're pointing out, so the, the side deals people are making, yeah. so they are not even showing up on the bank's balance sheet or banks uh, any reports because they have nothing to do with bank. They're using influence. So, influence battling is perhaps the biggest corruption. I think that's a very good point, but I think another reason, possibly, that I speculate on is that. The uh, the banking system does not represent a vested interest of any great power that is allied with a political opponent to Xi Jinping, and so it doesn't present a, uh, a political sort of a threat. Which is mean meaning that they they don't it's there but they don't prosecute. Well, I I can't say it's there. I mean, this is a, a theory. Uh, yeah, it's a view. It's a, it's a view. I don't have any evidence of it, so I don't. I'm saying is this is discussed quite a bit in uh, a lot of media, including Financial Times and New York Times, that there is a lot of uh, financial corruption or corruption at, in the financial institutions or financial leaders, but it is not necessarily on the, the balance sheet. And it's not in the banks. I think it's, um, it's outside. It's uh, you'd certainly uh, the stock exchange is an area where there's a strong Shanghai mafia, and it's not been cracked. And uh, a lot of the credit trusts and this kind of thing; those are the areas where I think this kind of thing would be happening. And now it's slipping into you know private space where the acquisitions are happening. There was another news yesterday: how 50 people own you know Hainan Airlines. This was in Financial Times just yesterday. Yeah. How did that happen? How can 15 people own such a big airlines? Well, this is financial uh, uh, corruption at a high level, but it's not related to financial institutions. Right, right. I, I, I yeah. used to be a financial consultant myself, so yeah. I, I tend to agree with your yeah. remarks about banks. I think the question really is, is at the local level that loan officers, it's hard to imagine loan officers are not paid off to lend money to not financially creditworthy borrowers. Given Chinese culture, it's just it's tough to imagine that does not occur. Well, coming out of a Southeast Asian context, that's the first thing that arises in right. my mind. Um, but it, of all the sort of risks that we worried about, my Chinese colleagues were saying, "Yeah, that's a problem, but it's it's not at the level of the other sort of risks." How do you square your view with the Moody's downgrade recently? Well, I think I should read my book, um, but um, I think that they underestimate, uh, I think they fall in the same trap that everybody else does, and that is to underestimate the ability of the government 
to handle some of the problems that they talk about. And in the book, I, I quote uh, uh, one very senior Chinese economist who served with me on the board of Everbright and was uh, a state councillor to the state council itself on economic matters. And he said, Jim, the things that all you Westerners worry about, they're all true, they're all real, they're all difficult problems. The only thing is that by the time you start to worry about them, we're already working on solutions. Very arrogant statement, but a lot of truth to it, actually. Why do you think there is this bias that <coughs> things are worse than they actually are? Well, I, I, I give two answers to that question. One is the Chinese are terrible at explaining themselves. Uh, it, it goes throughout the government, and they're beginning to be aware of the need to do soft power. And as I, I quote a couple of Xinhua uh, op-eds that they put in the Western press, and they don't work. They don't know how to do it. Uh, they should hire people like the people in this room to write them for them. Uh, we could do a much better job of it. And at the bank level, uh, bank analysts simply do not have access to the banks the way they do to the Hong Kong Bank, to the Chase Bank. Uh, they can't get their questions answered. Neither can journalists. And uh, there is not a recognition on the part of China of the importance of explaining to the rest of the world what they're doing. And in September of 2015, when the uh, PBOC changed the formula on the exchange rate and immediately 2% change uh, in the value of the renminbi, and it set off this massive shock waves, and the Chinese government doesn't know what it's doing, et cetera. Really, what it what they showed the Chinese government doesn't know is they don't understand the necessity of explaining what they're doing in, right. in a, a good way. Uh, the second reason, though, I, I often joke that I needed to have a psychiatrist and anthropologist joining me in writing the book. I think that uh, uh, there are a lot of subconscious factors at work here, that in the West we have difficulty uh, accepting, and that's why I like the Krugman co uh, comment here. Krugman, this great Nobel Prize winner, has difficulty accepting that there could be any economic system that would work effectively that was different from the one that is taught in the standard Western uh, uh, fashion. So I think it's, it's part of our overall difficulty of dealing with the rise of China. We've got a great audience today. Let me open the floor right here first. Great, thank you. Henry Yang with HHN Capital. <clears throat> James, you show a slide that says three words. They're all identical. Stability, stability, stability. Going to the mix, you talked about risk aversion. <clears throat> and obviously, you know, with the assets, a lot of the banks are owned by the state governments. Um, shareholder maximization is probably not one of the key priorities, unlike many of the Western banks. You also commented earlier. With that said, is it fair to say that there will be less banking problems in China compared to Western banks? You know, non-performance loans, maybe perhaps runs in the banks of what we had in this country back in 2008. If your answer is yes, uh, well, if your answer is no, I would like to know what the reason for. Uh, if my answer uh, no meaning it's likely or unlikely. Well, less problems than U.S. banks, or Western All right. banks? Uh, yeah, very good question. Um, first of all, 
there's a wonderful book uh, that was written a couple of years ago by uh, American professors called Fragile by Design that I commend to everybody about uh, exactly my point here that banking systems emerge out of the political economy of each country, which in turn is has cultural underpinnings. So the authors look at five different countries' banking systems to demonstrate their point. And the most interesting is the U.S. versus Canada. Uh, since the founding of the Republic, uh, the U.S. has had, I think, 14 banking crises. And I expect, uh, I don't know, I should count how many I've lived through, but I expect to see another one before I, I finish. Uh, Canada's had one, and that was in 1839, and they decided they didn't like it. Uh, they Canada's, we all think of Canada as a little bit boring. Uh, they like stability, and they don't like this sort of disruption. So they have a very strong regulator, and their banks are very risk-averse. And if you own shares of Royal Bank of Canada or any of the other Chinese, uh, Canadian banks, they, they did fine through the 2008 problem because of this very strong regulatory authority. Now, I think uh, the Chinese want to do the same thing that Canada has, and they've given a lot of teeth to the CBRC and the PBOC. Uh, but nonetheless, those are young organizations which are confronting this whole range of new challenges that I mentioned, any one of which could be highly destabilizing. So uh, because of stability, 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 I think the Chinese government will pull out all the stops to avoid a banking crisis, whatever is required, because a banking crisis would be very destabilizing. We know what it did to the US. They watched that very closely. They stopped copying Western-style uh, banking in 2008. They said, that's not what we want. And I think they, as I talked to earlier, that's why the power of the state is so important, that the party will reach a decision, this must be stopped, and the power of the state will be unleashed, just as it was for a different reason in 2008. They were afraid of unemployment. They will not tolerate unemployment. They did whatever it took to avoid that, and they were successful at that, with some costs that they're cleaning up now, but basically extraordinarily successful. I think the same thing will happen with the banking system. Now, as they go about cleaning up small banks, um, second-tier, third-tier banks, uh, how will they do it? Some of them are in real difficulty today. My guess is they will do it very quietly. There will be uh, changes of the management team. They'll shore up the capital position. They'll write off assets over several years. They'll sell assets into provincial asset management companies that are developing now. They might even merge a few banks. They might require a big bank to take over a small bank. All of this will, won't make a ripple in the overall thing. It won't amount to a crisis. I think if they have a banking crisis, it will be a dramatic event in China. Could you speak a little louder? You were with HSBC, were you? Yes. Uh, which years was that? Uh, 2006 to 2010. Okay. I joined Everbright Bank in 2006, and the bank said, we'll open a bank account for you 
for us to pay your director's fees? And I said, no, I'll do it myself. So I went to a branch, and I wore Levi's and a T-shirt, and I went in, and I filled out the form, and I gave it to the teller. She said, no, you got it wrong. Go back, redo it. I went back, I redid it. And then I brought it back to her and said, well, you got it right this time, but it's 12 o'clock, and the person who approves new bank accounts has gone to lunch. Come back this afternoon. So I related this experience to the board, which made everybody cringe, and I pushed. we got to do something about service. Service in Chinese banks was simply awful back in 2006, and it was even worse before that. And I realized, one of the things I learned in the board was that if I come up with an idea and I note the CEO and the chairman making a note, I've hit the jackpot. But if they don't take their pen out, that means I better withdraw, just not push that. They're not ready for it yet. About 2009, the CEO walked over to me after a uh, board meeting and with a big grin on his face, and he said, Tim, next year will be the year of service. We're going to finally do what you've been telling us to do. It will be the year of, we're the, for those of you who speak uh, Chinese, we're the Guangda Yinhang, and this was going to be Yangguang Fu Nian. And I said, well, that's very nice, but we don't need a... Uh, uh, a one-year uh, movement. We need a fundamental change. He said, Jim, this is the way we do things in China. We have a year's campaign where everybody gets into it. We create heroes and all kinds of things. After that, we institutionalize it. And I think at the joint stock banks now, uh, the service is pretty good. And that occurred basically the end of the time you were in Shanghai. Uh, but not only is the service in the joint stock banks fairly good, it's reasonably good in the big banks, but they have a much bigger customer base. They're still a little bit behind, I think. But the key thing is that the Chinese fintech is so good, and the acceptance of Chinese, even 80-year-olds who in America would say, oh, I can't even send a, a text message. In China, they're using their WeChat to order goods, make payments, uh, all kinds of things. Uh, extraordinary uh, use of fintech in China. So in, in, that, in that sense, the service of Chinese banks to the retail customer is really very, very good. Question. Um, what do you think is the end game for banks like Minchang's, right? Where um, if you look at like a, the five-year AA bond, for instance, it sold off, let's say, 240 basis points from the lows last year. About 100 of that was since these directives were approved in May. Um, Part of that was because Mention was told you cannot distribute wealth management products anymore. And, and as a result, there is no more recycling of those bonds and the retail have to go and buy them. If not, then they'll continue to sell off, right? So you, you, you essentially are creating a crisis here, right? You, you're kind of like manufacturing a crisis by triggering a bank go out of business because the main business is wealth management product creation. While on the other hand you are seeing also the bond market continuing to sell off. Right? So so how, what do you think is the end game here? I mean do you think the bank will go bankrupt? Do you think that you're going to have corporates that don't have access to markets because bond yields are too high, would be a combination of the two. Um, and then if you could also give a little bit of your view on the potential naming of this new governor, I don't know if you heard about it, but it would actually come, uh, apparently it would be some 
Princeton coming out of of, uh, of the UC or CBSC uh, 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 leader that we're talking about. <coughs> oh, sorry, my name is Daniel Tengels, I'm with SECA. Okay. I'm uh, two. Uh, interesting questions. I'm only partially going to answer them because I think I'm only qualified to partially answer them. The Minshung case is uh, very interesting. Uh, it was sort of the darling of Western investors because we assume privately owned is good, state-owned is not good. In fact, Minshung, it was the most aggressive of the joint stock banks in many ways, and it's gotten itself into a few problems in the last or four years. Most recently, they had a wealth management, uh, real uh, wealth management scandal. Um, where it's going to end up, where Minsheng will end up, I wouldn't comment. Uh, there's no way for me to know on that. I assume it will survive, and they will quietly behind the scenes uh, address the problems in management or whatever they think needs to be done. But it's, what I find interesting in your question is they created a little mini crisis there. They do that from time to time. About five years ago, uh, when I was sitting in my home in Bangkok, they uh, created a little liquidity uh, crisis. And uh, my bank, China Everbright Bank, was caught with a, at the end of the day with a short, small deficiency in Interbank. And the uh, whole cost of funds in Interbank shot up to 16 17% for a while. And a... Uh, very good uh, American economist uh, was in China at that time, the following week, and he related to the story. He called on the deputy governor of the People's Bank of China, and he said, uh, Governor, um, how long will this uh, liquidity crisis go on? The governor said, I think until about 2 o'clock this afternoon. <laughs> it was manufactured. It was as, very early in my presentation. Is that I said, Nick Lardy? He was I, with me. <laughs> All right. I had that conversation, too. Did I get the time of day right? <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, yeah, he, this, he told me that because I, I knew there was no liquidity crisis in China. Mm. At that time, banks were awash in money. The deposit loan ratios were very healthy. So uh, what, the, what the PBOC was doing was it saying, okay, you guys have gotten it with credit uh, – risk, and you're pretty good on operational risk now, but we've been telling you to get good on liquidity risk, and you haven't, so we're going to do a little exercise. We're going to show you what happens when Interbank seizes up, and we will cause it to seize up. And they never admitted this publicly, uh, but that's why it happened for about three days. They got their message through, and I can assure you that after that, there was no board meeting in our bank for the next year that didn't have a discussion of liquidity risk control. They got the message through very effectively. So that's the creation of a minor crisis. As for who will be the next PBOC governor, I, I'm totally unqualified to even speculate on that. But the one thing I do say to people, there was a lot of talk about, well, Shang uh, uh, um, uh, Fulin uh, was not effective as CBRC governor, and Guo Shuqing will come in, and he's going to be much more effective. And I, I don't buy that. I think all of these people are first and foremost party members. They are team players. They may have personal agendas that are more aggressive or less aggressive, but ultimately the state council 
tells them the bounds within which they play. And they know how that game is played, or they wouldn't get to the top. So uh, whoever it is will be, they know the importance of the central bank, they will appoint somebody very good, and they'll be, that will be somebody who they think will be effective in implementing whatever they have in mind for the PBOC to do over the next five years. TK, go ahead. Gao uh, Xicheng, uh, who is uh, one of the key figures in uh, establishing the financial system, uh, foundation of the financial system in China, he recently made a speech uh, saying that the idea that the market will be playing a decisive role that you know that the government has already abandoned that. I mean that speech. You know we have a WeChat group among our partners in our firm, and it's been circulating. But I just looked at it and deleted for some reason. I think it's a speech he made at the Council on Foreign Relations recently. Do you think there's any merit to that, or does he have maybe he doesn't have any more power? You know maybe what he says no longer is important. Well, I certainly wouldn't want to uh, take on Gao Xiqing and uh, disagree with him, but I do disagree with him. Uh, I think that uh, uh, I think there's a misinterpretation in the West of what market forces will be decisive means. And that's why I explained earlier, uh, they are a means, not an end. And the extent to which they are allowed to play out depends on each individual situation. Um, I think uh, there may be redefinitions of this. Uh, I don't know whether it's that speech or another speech that he made recently, but uh, I'm told it got him in quite a bit of trouble. Uh, so uh, I don't know to what extent um, he represents um, uh, a different point of view within the government that he maybe was putting forward, but um, he apparently got into some trouble over that. Arthur. same statements about cultural differences, different style of, of, of capitalism, uh, advantages of coordination, etc. Et uh, so I wonder if you could address that, and then specifically, uh, if you look at the stress levels in the Chinese financial system, they've clearly been growing for the last decade. So total debt, debt GDP has doubled in the last uh, 10 years. All measures of capital productivity have gone down. Uh, loans deposit throughout the system have gone up quite substantially below in absolute terms, but they've gone up probably by about uh, a factor and a half uh, in the last year, nine years of continued rise. So we have a lot of sort of prima facie evidence that a lot of debt is being pumped into the economy for less and less return. And I think that's what leads to this uh, outside that you have a, a financial system of whatever its successes and capacity less efficient and less able to push uh, capital where it's needed, and that all of the ratios that anyone, any financial analysts would look at, they're all going in the wrong direction, and that clearly cannot continue forever. So how do you... Okay, I, I see three questions in that. Um, 
the first is the uh, comparison with Japan, and I'm not an expert on Japan at all. But I would say that it gets back again to the, my basic thesis of the cultural underpinnings of the political economy. And uh, the Japanese system did not seem, uh, after the 80s, to be able to undertake major sort of reforms that would uh, allow them to wind down the debt levels and to uh, restore the system to health, as a result of which they have very, very high debt-GDP ratios to this day, um, and all the other problems we know about in Japan. Um, the, so then it comes down to the political question that I posed at the end. Does the Chinese government retain the flexibility and the pragmatism and the willpower to address these questions or not? If it is not, then I think the Japanese uh, comparison would be quite relevant. Um, I take an optimistic view, but uh, well, that time will tell. And the second question is the, uh, the, the stress level increasing. I completely agree, and I think everybody in the Chinese government would completely agree. They, I don't think they're in denial about this. I think, though, it's well to bear in mind that on uh, the key one that people are worrying about now, which is the overall level of GDP of debt to GDP, which is somewhere 270 to 80 percent, something like that, up from 160 percent a decade ago. Uh, the real problem is, as you say, the trajectory. Uh, the level, absolute level of 280 percent is not by itself unmanageable, particularly in view of the fact <laughs> that very little of it is owed offshore. It's a totally different situation uh, from the situation in Thailand in 1997 when I was helping to run a bank there. And... Um, I think this is overlooked by a lot of people, including one time in a conversation with Charlene Chu, he said, we have a Thai situation developing here in China. I said, no, it's totally different. Um, now, I think the economic uh, solutions to lowering that debt are all there. The, the personal debt is not too high, and personal savings are very, very great. The government debt is reasonable to total GDP. The problem is in corporate debt, and particularly in SOE corporate debt. And the solutions to that are definitely there. So does it, do they have the willpower to reform the SOEs, which uh, I think it was you said to me once, they don't have to make them perfect. They don't have to make them a little better. And the cash flow improves. The debt servicing capability improves. Um, also... Uh, I, I would hope that they adopt one of the solutions they did for the uh, uh, financial SOEs, the banks, namely corporatize, do financial holding companies like Central Weijin, which would have a very much bottom line orientation and would then sit on the boards of these companies and perhaps the banks then convert some of the debt to equity and also sit on the boards. So you've got a whole new cast of characters at the top that would drive the same kind of uh, transformation with the SOEs that occurred with the banks 10 years ago. The capability of doing that is, to me, clearly there. Will it happen? That will be the story of the next five years. Yes. A little louder. Okay, sorry. Great book. <laughs> I read it. I highly recommend it to everybody. Just to this gentleman's point, there's a couple of other issues that I might just throw out. China has a reserve of 8 billion, that, so it's pretty strong. Uh, 
No, oh, thank you, Frank. Uh, very good points. <laughs> thank you. Uh, very good points. And uh, another point is uh, there's a huge amount of corporate deposits with the banks as well, backing a lot of this lending. So, uh, the, as in all things, I think the economic solutions are there. There's the political will there. Um, last question, I think, right here. All right, uh, Jay Lee, I teach at Rutgers Law School. So, um, Recently, there was. Uh, yeah, you better face back. All right. Uh, my name is Steve Lee. I teach at Rutgers Law School. So there were uh, some reports recently about uh, how Chinese banks overseas branches caught were caught in violation of uh, local regulations like money laundering or loose enforcement of uh, uh, account operations, something like that. So uh, my impression from your talk, which I. I think it's very impressive, um, is that the Chinese banks are highly risk-averse, and they are under uh, heavy and complex regulations back home. So were the recent violations abroad simply driven by domestic politics in Europe and the, the US, you know, the China agricultural bank was in trouble recently? Or was it because they were, they were not really familiar with well, I don't have an inside view on that, but I, I, but I will answer that by saying that I think, and I write about this in the, in the book, that Chinese banks are still very unprepared for aggressive overseas expansion. Uh, they don't have the sort of cadre of expatriate staff that has been developed in a place like Standard Chartered, HSBC, Citibank, and even those banks have all been caught by uh, compliance issues in New York as well. But they don't have these people. They also don't have the strength of compliance uh, people. They certainly don't have experience in non-Chinese regulatory regimes. Um, they uh, lack a lot of uh, the supervision capability for dealing in markets all around the world. And I think they are, from what I can see, they're aware of this. And they will go reasonably cautiously. And I think the, the fine on agricultural banks had quite a shock through the Chinese banking community. Now, where I see uh, their overseas expansion as being a game changer is in the extent that the big banks are having to support the One Belt, One Road uh, program. Uh, and when Chinese banks loan to state-owned projects, infrastructure projects in China, it was ultimately left hand, left pocket, right pocket. One way or another, the money would be there to bail them out. When they're lending to a new high-speed railway from Budapest to Serbia or something in Kazakhstan, it's a new ball game. So that will be interesting to watch. And I think you have a One Belt, One Road program coming up soon, Steve. We do. We do. We're out of time, but the book is available outside. 
Um, it's to know China's banking system. It's really, it's really an incredible insider's account. We thank you for writing it, and thank you for the contribution, and thank you for sharing with us your insights today. Thank you. Thank you.